0: This is a prophylactic pre-roll. That doesn't sound right. It's a, it's, we might not need it. It might turn out that we didn't need it. Okay, so so what are we, we... don't know right now whether we need there's it. There's only one purpose
1: of this pre-roll. We have gotten a couple of nice letters and uh, not via the mails, but through the emails and um, people have tweeted. So we're collecting that. We're probably going to do a You and Me episode soon where we kind of catch yes. up on that and talk about other things. Agreed. What What's on our mind. Uh, oral Argument Podcast at gmail.com. That's Oral Argument Podcast at gmail.com. and we're Oral Argument on Twitter. So you know, get in touch if you've got something to say. Um, if Our we, guests this week are. If we haven't addressed your feedback, it, we're it's collecting, it's collecting. Um, so, yeah, it's reaching critical mass. Yeah, yeah, and when we reach critical mass, Yeah, that's. i was just going to say the same thing. Mm-hmm. We're going to make. I was going to make the same really stupid joke. Mm, that's where we are, Joe.
0: Nice. Same dumb wavelength. Thanks for calling me stupid. And no, dumb. no, no. It's the wavelength that's stupid. Our guests are Ethan Lieb and Jed Sugarman. And Jed Sugarman. Of Fordham Law School.
1: That's right. Ethan Lieb is a returning guest, Jed Sugarman a first-time guest, but um, on, on our show. Indeed. Multiple, mm-hmm. multiple uh, guest appearances on, on other, I was going to say lesser shows, but let's just say other shows. Yeah, other. Other,
0: other shows. Other than ours. But um, them at Fordham Law School. No, we're, And we're talking about a paper about uh, fiduciary law and constitutional law and their intersection, and I don't remember the precise title. Which seems to be a theme now. I'm really bad with titles as well. Yeah. You couldn't remember it last week
1: either. Yeah. Yeah. But it's in the show notes. And as we say, I'm not sure if this will be necessary either, but this is, we're recording this on Friday, June, what the heck is today? The 22nd, I believe. 22nd. So, uh, but it's not going to ship for another week. Probably. I just shipped out the fantastic episode that we had with Aziz Huck. Correct. Um, and, and so that was just, just now basically. And, and so this will, so there, if, if the world blows up in the next week and we're not talking about it, it's because we recorded it a week early. Right. Um, not, not because I'm not saying that we're not jerks, but it's not because we're jerks that we don't mention these things.
0: Yeah. If it, if it figuratively blows up, uh, that's why we didn't talk about it. If It literally blows up. I don't think anyone's going to hear this thing. Well, I mean, you know, I, I, it's maybe some, you know, people from another planet who eventually come here and recover the from oh the boy. smoldering rubble. Um, At the end of the episode, I said we, we hit I had stopped like 30 seconds,
1: 30 seconds too late. And again, <laughs> <laughs> so let's hit stop and let's get on with the show. Boy, oh, boy. All right, so you guys i 'm going to start the recording here this is that, that This is the voice of the beginning of the show um, <laughs> and
2: I just, I just, It begins with a chortle and laughter
1: <laughs> Most of our shows do, which I think you know in in this day and age is like a really a really good sign about holding on to one 's humanity that we 're able to begin that way. And, um, but also I just shipped the show today, just like just a couple hours ago. So True. So this is one of these time capsule shows. We're pro- I'm probably not going to ship this until next week. Um, now, if you're listening to this, that doesn't mean you have to turn it off and wait until next week. It means, you know, it's been a week since we recorded it.
0: Right. And it also means that there are all sorts of things that you might be wondering, why aren't they talking about X? Like the Trump travel ban and decision because, that's come down, right? Yeah. It's because X hasn't happened yet. Right. To like, us, because we're in your past. Right. Even though now that you're
1: listening, we're also in your present. Like the Canadian invasion of the Great Lakes. Why aren't they talking? This is a big news item this week. Right, because it didn't happen yet. It hasn't happened yet. Right. So uh, so there's that. So you guys should be aware too that you know, all these decisions which are going to come down next week.
2: This, this is a time capsule.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Look, if Justin Trudeau is, is riding on the prow of that ship, I will surrender immediately. <laughs> <laughs> I just want him to know that. <laughs> I think it's important. Oh, this sounds like a romance novel. In the <laughs> <maybe>. <laughs> if that, if that, you know, Lake Superior air is sort of rushing through his hair and it's, you know, he's the king of the world. So there are so many things that we could talk to you guys about. Um, and, uh, is, you, know,
1: um, you know, Jed has been, I, I think you've been rehearsing for this, your appearance here on Oral Argument and all kinds of shows on, you know cable news and all the kinds lesser of known shows but yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, but now you're here <laughs> like now you're it's here like, though now is, you've arrived
3: these were all it was all a big it's press all, rehearsal it's all this, lead up and now Jed, this it's, moment. it's showtime baby so
1: you know uh, we're, we're ready to hear like the, the distilled the <laughs> your distilled opinions on like what 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 it all means um but we're, we are going to focus on we're going to focus on this paper that you guys wrote together um on on the fiduciary constitution and its implications for at least two issues and, and maybe there's, uh, I'm, well, I'm, I know there's a lot more to say
0: about it, but uh, where do we get started? Well, this is focused on the executive again. So like our prior conversation, we're, we're focused on questions of, of um, you know, executive constitutional law. Um,
1: hey, and you guys prob- probably aren't aware because I just pushed the episode out that it was, uh, we just talked to Aziz Huck about apex criminality. A how, recent paper of and, his. Yeah, how a constitutional designer, in in, in the abstract, um, should approach questions of criminality by high officials, and it's a really interesting thought exercise, and and how you would approach this, not in any you know with respect to any one you mm-hmm. know, it's it's really hard to know in the middle about how our constitution should apply to criminality by the president or or in in this case his cronies or whatever else, but but it's it's a. It's it's also a thorny problem to think about it in the abstract. And and so there's a nice, I think, connection here, you know, as I was just working on the show today right. with, with your paper.
0: So, Ethan, maybe this is the place to start. Because, Ethan, when we had you on before, we were talking about an administrative law set of stuff. And this paper is, you've been writing in sort of fiduciary theory of public law, it seems, uh, in, in a number of projects. Um with a number of people now you've got this one with jed um can you just give us that that a little bit of that broader context of taking fiduciary law fiduciary duty as an idea in law and trying to apply it to public law style questions which some people might uh, an untutored listener might think oh well that's a little surprising i wouldn't i thought that was a private law concept
2: yeah, I mean, I, th- I think, um, I mean, the the more and more that I I study, um, and you know, of where where fiduciary obligation comes from. So, in brief, it's you know basically the idea. Uh, that when one person has a particular kind of discretion or control over the legal and practical interests of another, we constrain that discretion. We constrain the possibility of the exercise of power in a predatory or exploitative way with kind of thick obligations that sometimes sound uh, moralistic. Or often courts speak about them in kind of heightened rhetoric uh, in order to constrain their discretion in some way and hold them to. Uh, Allegiance or loyalty to the beneficiaries that are supposed to be benefiting uh, from their exercise of authority or power. Um, And as I've described it, um, although much of this law gets kind of developed through the private law. Um, And corporate law is in large measure kind of fiduciary law. Um, Trust law is in large measure fiduciary law. Uh, Obligations that attorneys have to their clients is in some measure fiduciary law. Um, But I think the when I describe it in, in general terms, it easily describes the exercise of political power and political authority. Um, and so as a kind of trained as a political theorist, I've, I, I gravitated to these concepts as a way of thinking through a variety of problems in political theory, problems of political representation, for example, is one of the earliest papers I wrote about this. Um, so uh, it, it, it's a, an extremely kind of a fertile area for thinking through, Old political theory concepts like the social contract, uh, which don't really work in a contractual way, but might work if you start thinking about uh, p- political power in more fiduciary terms. Um, so that's there's, that's some background. But but the question that that really this paper pursues, and and the the the, the reason I can't really do it alone is it's it's a, in large measure now a historical project trying to figure out you know, what dimensions of our constitutional law are really fiduciary law
1: and it's really it's really like two historical projects right it, it, there's the and a, and a meta interpretive project right so it's a it, it's it's about the history of fiduciary law like wh- where did it come from why is it what it is why has it become what it has become and a history of constitution making right and it's how those two histories are interacting it seems to me a more complicated history than, than a normal, like constitutional history project.
2: So complicated is it that we've, we've brought on another historian into the project, uh, for kind of further development of the ideas that we're first working out in this kind of proto project, um, in the paper we're talking about today, which is really kind of a symposium piece, uh, that we did for this, um, for a group of people that met at Georgetown to discuss this book by Gary Lawson and Guy Seidman, um, a, mm-hmm. a great power of attorney understanding the fiduciary constitution. Um, but but you're quite right that, that- So
3: we're going to keep them in suspense about who this, uh, this third partner- uh, Well, it, sa- it sounds like you brought in. a ringer onto the team. That's what it sounds we like. We did. <laughs> I think we, can we- A big big reveal? Go ahead. Go uh, ahead, Chad. Well, we've, we've brought on our colleague and friend, Andrew Kent- um, okay. Who And I think that's also, I think it's, as you're describing it, it's, it's really three historical projects plus the interpretive move of originalism. So the, I, I, I just add, I think there's an English story of public and private law. So okay. I, one is there's a history of fiduciary law. Then two, there's a history of English law that, uh, which reflects both the public and private mix of this faithful execution uh, wording and concept. And then, then there's the American Founding. Um, yeah, this stuff is just overlap. This stuff is just right up
1: my alley. This public-private distinction yeah. messing oh, up, yes. and yeah, the cross-fertilization of the areas of law and whether they're analogous or whatever. It's this is great. And and, 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 and now Andrew, the big
0: reveal: Andrew's actually on the line, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, but no. I will say of Andrew um, that that he either already knows, or it will soon be revealed that he's a descendant of Chancellor Kent. Um, because, if he, because he has to be. I mean, just for
2: this all to work. What you may not know about Andrew Kent is that his real first name is James. It is James. So actually, you know, it's J. Andrew Kent. See?
0: You just, you're, 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 singing, you're singing off of my hymn,
3: Noel. This is great. I love it. And it is possible he is actually Chancellor Kent. We're talking about a time <laughs> capsule. Uh, we are not, he could actually be an unfrozen caveman chancellor.
2: Or a William. vampire.
3: Does he yes. Sparkle?
2: He does have issues with the sun, now that you mention it. He, he wears a lot of sunscreen.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Anything's possible here in oral argument, people. That's what I'm telling you.
1: So can, can we, I, just to get, um, for listeners who don't like know what this whole idea of fiduciary law is and how it's different than normal law, can we just go back for a second and and describe how, like in in normal, like just take a municipal legal system, a, a legal system in some area which is described just geographically. So it's not for any, it's not any particular purpose driven legal vehicle. It's it's the ordinary government that governs a geographic area, and and in most such municipal legal systems. The kinds of duties that people owe to get owe to one another are very thin. Like basically, duties not affirmatively to harm, and a duty to kind of comply with an obligation you've voluntarily taken on, and then a duty not to disrupt the public in some way. I mean, they, these are very thin, and they're elaborated in in, in tort law. Um, but but even if you voluntarily take on a duty by saying, "Hey, I'll agree to you know ship you a, a bunch of cement in exchange for some money," um, even within that relationship you've created. You're totally licensed to act in a self interested way so long as you comply with that very narrow duty, but there are situations in in everyday life that the municipal legal system wants to kind of take on where um, people for whatever reason act on behalf of others in ways that can really screw up the principle right the agent acts in ways that you know if 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 the agent acts in a self interested way to the detriment of the principle, we think there's some kind of social harm that arises there. Either relationships aren't properly formed, uh, or people are taken advantage. Of, you know, and and these, as you pointed out, uh, can arise in in many different situations. The class, the classic private sense, right, is is you know fiduciary law.
0: What? Yeah. Well, just to, I think there's a there's sort of a human psychology theory or a human uh, a human behavior theory behind this idea, which is which you've sort of uncovered, which is that if, if, you, weren't, if you weren't expecting a, a good number of people to behave opportunistically mm-hmm. or, or, or to their own benefit and to someone else's detriment if they can get away with it, right? right. If you weren't expecting that, this, this idea wouldn't crop up probably. This idea of a thicker duty that will allow courts to be able more robustly to set things aright after the fact. Right. It's, I think it is linked, at least in my mind, it's linked to the idea that you expect a certain amount of opportunism and that's why you need tools to guard against it, right? right. Uh, it's only because it's likely to happen that you need a legal apparatus that will allow you to undo the harm um, and, and thereby encourage people to form those sorts of relationships because they can have more confidence it, that the the predatory behavior is going to be um, negated, but after, it's normative in the sense it
1: that you have to have a sense of like what what you know what kinds of relationships do you want to prevent someone from acting in a self interested way to the detriment of the other person
0: in that relationship. That's that's how right. you would know where to apply this thicker duty. Yeah,
1: and so I, that that seems to me like a conceptual description of of that the zone of fiduciary duties, so called in in legal systems. I mean, what do, what do you guys think? Is there? I, I know the historical story is more is more complicated, but. Um, is that basically the story of, of 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 private fiduciary duty in 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 legal systems
2: yeah though i I would kind of uh, complicate it in one small way and it's it's there's a certain fallacy in assuming that uh, hardcore uh, judicial enforcement robust judicial enforcement of relationships of sp- special trust or confidence is the way to promote relationships of special trust and confidence in the world. Um, So there is kind of what you might call kind of a simple either crowding out problem to use more sort of technical terminology, um, or just the worry that if what you really want is to motivate people to kind of form relationships of intimacy, it may very well be that enforcing legal duties of intimacy is not the way to promote real intimacy, um, and so that that's a kind of concern I think that's b- really baked into uh, fiduciary law. That that on the one hand we think there are sometimes that people are just kind of especially vulnerable to predation of a certain kind. Um, And so we want to protect them. And so you have this protective instinct that the law is bringing to those relationships of intimacy. But at the same time, there is this kind of risk that I think the law takes notice of, that if you too aggressively police this, you're never going to get people acting for the right kinds of reasons. And I think that that is, is so much a part of the fabric of fiduciary law that we are trying to motivate fiduciaries to act for the right reasons, that if they start acting only because they worry about judicial enforcement. They're not, they're never going to be capable of really acting for the right kinds of reasons.
1: So is the story that judicial enforcement typically crops up where principal agent problems don't, you know, would, would aren't, um, or, or would be underdeterred otherwise, you know, so, like, I think states that have maintenance obligations between spouses I, I don't think generally that the maintenance obligations encourage spouses to treat one another well. I think they're usually used right as, as weapons after the relationship has gone south, I would assume. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, and I know you've written about friendship, Ethan, and like, you know, we don't typically enforce like duties of friendship probably because it won't cause people to form friendships.
2: Um, the key is that there is kind of this zone of um, exhortation to behave right. well, kind of be with uh, morals beyond just the morals of the marketplace. So the kind of quintessential case in, in American jurisprudence is a case called Meinhard versus Salmon, a very famous Cardoza opinion um, where uh, sort of co-ventures, uh, co-venturers are to, uh, one is told that he has to behave in this way, but the podtilio of an honor the most sensitive is the right kind of standard. Um, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of exhortation to behavior, a sort of kind of impeccable behavior, a behavior that would be better than your average person who might act a little bit opportunistically. Um, and yet, the, the kind of the story of enforcement is actually one of under enforcement. People believe that largely that courts kind of bark a lot, but are not actually providing a lot of bite on the remedial side. So I, I mean, I just wanted to Make sure that that was a kind of counterpoint to this thinking that it's the law is always doing the work here of making sure right. these relationships are functioning. There's a kind of real sense in which these relationships have to function extrajudicially outside the law. Um, and that's kind of part of their character. Um, be, mm-hmm. It's because we are kind of the law is always kind of reaching out into these special relationships. That seem to formulate themselves in a way outside the law, and so the, and just, and that's the that's a kind of model.
1: Just one one quick question then, uh, before we go to the we look at the public side of it. Um, Actually, two. Okay, so uh, do do you consider um, like the corpus of medical malpractice laws and licensure and all of that to be a kind of fiduciary law between doctor and patient, and similarly? Would you consider like lemon laws and odometer disclosure laws and all of these, th- you know, uh, and consumer protection laws like a corpus of law which constitutes the fiduciary obligations of of car salesmen to consumers, both under the theory that like there's a kind of special knowledge um, on on the other side of that basically consumer transaction that we think will go kind of under disclosed and potentially to the detriment of the consumer. So I'm just wondering how broadly we can conceive of of, of what counts as today fiduciary duty in our law? Uh,
2: I mean, I think the short answer would be your, uh, your car salesman is conventionally not considered, um, big, uh, fiduciary. I mean, it's, it's, it can't just be any old person in the marketplace can be your fiduciary. How, we are trying to, um, you know, draw a line around s- special relationships where there's kind of a special trust. This goes back to something, uh, uh, I think Joe was saying a moment ago that th- there's a kind of baked in expectation that the person you're negotiating with for your car is like trying to make a profit on your uh, your transaction. And so the idea that we would say, oh, well, the person who's selling the car has some kind of special knowledge about the car and therefore is actually in control of you uh, in some meaningful way wouldn't really work. And so we wouldn't demarcate a- any. Marketplace relationship uh, in fiduciary terms now this hasn't stopped people from trying to argue um, that there are some people in the marketplace or some entities that that could function this way so some people have argued for example there's a kind of information fiduciary so uh, your bank or Facebook knows just so much about you that they should be treated uh, with certain kind of fiduciary obligations um, and so you are seeing some of those arguments pop up but but the law hasn't quite Taken hold of that um, and run with it, just yet.
0: But you you could you could think of um, some information disclosure laws uh, imposed by statute, for example, though, couldn't you? As uh, as partial substitutes for a common law actual fiduciary duty or an analogical fiduciary duty at, at common law, that that when a legislature passes a disclosure law, they might think, well, one reason why these are good laws is because they do some of the work that fiduciary duty concepts also do
1: that's kind of what i was trying to argue that they're kind of constructive of a relationship they're kind of standing in for it and and i don't think we're too far afield because i think once we move to the public side of it we can also see other laws as trying to construct the relationship between a public official and his or her constituents but um so but I, i know you guys are putting a lot on on the words trust and fiduciary as as referencing a very specific body of law i think right
2: yeah, although uh, th- that body of law changes over time, and so you know you, you, what it's pointing to or what it's cross-referencing um, might be changing over time. I mean, one of the things that this paper does at the end um, is try to think about um, there was a kind of principle of trust law, the non-delegation principle, so a trustee couldn't go out and delegate uh, features of its obligations to the trust um and that's really changed over time so kind of more modern trustee law is really there's lots of delegation going on it's and quite widely permitted um and so the question is you know suppose that as an originalist matter uh the uh the founders attempted to create a kind of trusteeship relationship of the government to the people um and originally the law of trusts was such that the non-delegation principle was the rule. Uh, Well, as that has changed, is the constitutional law of the trusteeship supposed to be tracking modern fiduciary law, or does it sort of get frozen in time because we say something like, you know, the founders or the framers wanted that non-delegation principle to apply? So this should be a kind of familiar debate about, you know, just how much non-delegation doctrine do we want to have imposed in in a kind of modern administrative state that is something that probably the framers weren't contemplating
0: so i've got one more background question or backdrop question about um so so you said uh, ethan that um you know y- you you might expect from some of the sources to to see very robust judicial enforcement um and and Instead, what you see is sort of maybe um, less robust enforcement, some, some rhetorical, you know, punctilio peacocking, but not much actual, you know, uh, holding someone responsible. And I wonder if there is in the cases and the, uh, the sort of the commentaries that you're obviously uh, very deeply familiar with, are, are judges talking about the fact that there's a, there's a contrary worry of a sort of moral hazard on the part of the beneficiary? Or the part of the the party for whose benefit the fiduciary is acting, that you know, if you go overboard, you're going to make people too inattentive to monitoring the people who are supposed to be acting for the benefit. And you don't want to do that either.
2: Oh, of course. I mean, I, yeah, I did not mean to leave the impression that there is no reality to fiduciary law. It is obviously the case that these remedies occur, and they are—they can be quite drastic uh, um, when when courts do choose to actually get involved. But the—but all I wanted to draw attention to was that there is also a lot of like chest beating that doesn't end up resulting in uh, in in. Uh, remedial action by the judiciary. And so it sometimes requires explanation for why it is that we see sometimes a, a lot of concern about self dealing. And then sometimes we, we sort of, you know, we're, we're just trying to find quid pro quo corruption and the rest of like the institutional corruption, we're going to just let go unchecked. Um, and it's because there there's a kind of calibration or you might call it uh, in the kind of parlance of today, a kind of remedial equilibration of trying to figure out, you know, just when you want to have uh, – b- D- justiciability and when you want to have we're going to let all these other political mechanisms be the d- things that dispose of the uh, of the fiduciary default here we're going to let this person just lose the next election because they're so corrupt we're not going to actually uh, impose some kind of um, anti-corruption law upon them so I, I mean that's that, that's all I wanted to draw attention to surely there are going to be kind of cases at the extreme where you're going to get enforcement of court that, that's where the law is coming from is when they when the courts do choose to get involved
1: so maybe maybe this is a question for jed so you know Ethan's been working on these questions for a long time, like how did you guys find each other for this? I mean I know you're both at the same school, but how did you you know was it jed you were interested in you had a hunch about like faithfully executes and the pardon power and you you guys were talking at some point how did this how did uh, yeah. the partnership arise yeah
3: it, i could, it was in a precise moment where it happened and it, and it was uh, it, if you'll believe me, it was in a faculty workshop. Uh, We were attending uh, a presentation. (laughs) It was was
2: lunch, lunch after. It it, it, it was a pretty good lunch.
3: It was a good lunch, but it was in the middle. (laughs) I I was sitting next to you at the table, and we're sitting there passing notes to each other um, during the Q&A after the talk. right? And um, I pointed out that there was this, the the talk was, it was Peter Shane's paper, Faithful Non-Execution. And we're sitting there uh, looking back at the take care clause. That's the basis for this title, faithful non-execution. And it just strikes me. I know that Ethan works on fiduciary duties. And I said, I just underlined, I think, faithful, uh, shall be faithfully executed from the take care clause. The president shall, uh, uh, shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed. And I sort of circled that phrase on the page and I said, Ethan, what is this? Um, and I think, and I think he saw exactly what I was asking from his vantage point. I was coming at it from my work on, uh, thinking about what limits executive power. And I had been thinking about pardons and removal and in the context of the Mueller investigation, but but neither of
1: you at that point had a hunch about like the, the history at the founding of, of almost explicitly referencing private trust law and the construction of, you know, the, the use of the words faithfully, the use of the word trust, like Like that was just a hunch at that point? It
3: was was just a hunch, but I think it was a linguistic hunch that seemed to tee up this historical question. I mean, I think he and Ethan and I both knew enough about both the founding and the history of fiduciary law that the 18th century founders were lawyers who regularly put together private financial documents and put together trusts and corporate charters So it just, that intuition was very much uh, about the next step. I think we both saw this as potentially the text of the Constitution had, unbeknownst to the 20th and 21st century scholars, had a signal of uh, public fiduciary duty in these offices. Um, And Ethan had been reading that material from, uh, Ethan knew of the, the body of fiduciary constitutionalism uh, very you know he's an expert in it um i had mm-hmm. at that point knew of it very you know just from a distance um and that then started us working together um at, with some, uh, on this particular project and i think uh, we've both seen uh, lots of scholars raise questions you know lots of people have written about what does faithful execution mean lots of scholars have written about fiduciary constitutionalism uh to as far as we can tell no one has made this link that the faithful execution language in the take care clause and in the president's oath it, uh, is, a, is a textual signal, a deliberate signal uh, that was part of the, the legal ecosystem of the 18th century, that this was actually uh, binding uh, the president and potentially other officers to fiduciary law
1: yeah in, in computer science it would be like a like a uh, like the invocation of a class right like you know it's an explicit like type invocation like you know th- this law is of type um fiduciary right and so all of the all of the kind of um uh architecture that goes with private fiduciary law is meant somehow to be applied to this other body by explicitly this explicit invocation is that's right. kind of what you're thinking uh, right
3: i i think that's what we're thinking and we're, i think it's also part of you know when when chief justice john marshall says You know, we have to remember this is a constitution we're expounding and it doesn't have the prolixity of a legal code. It also doesn't have the prolixity of, you know, a fiduciary law treatise. Uh, They were trying to write a constitution in what, you know, what is it? uh, uh, 5,000 words or, or, and and so they used a shorthand that in a room of lawyers, this is the language that they used. And so this is, this is our intuition and this is our working hypothesis. And we're, we're now finding a number of, uh, of historical documents that uh, that I think uh, help demonstrate or uh, help help elucidate this thesis. But this is what we're finding is that uh, is that not only was this part of uh, this language of faithful execution was part of private uh, documents, uh, private fiduciary instruments like trusts and corporate charters. Um, it was also put into statutes uh, that created public officers with financial responsibilities. So your town treasurer uh, would have a, the statute that created these offices would talk about the faithful execution or the faithful discharge of uh, public officers with public duties, over, over, particularly over money. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also find it in, uh, in English uh, statutes as well as American colonial charters. So uh, keep in mind, um, the public-private distinction gets really blurry in American colonial history. The charters, the, the the you know the, the, the colony of Massachusetts uh, is, is created as a not as a as a public right. colony, but it's created as a corporate charter. So the documents that the, the corporate charter that creates Massachusetts is is, a, is has fiduciary duties connected to the uh, the obligations of of, uh, of boards and trustees that run uh, that run a corporation. Um, th- those then uh, become part of colonial statutes. Uh, that also create duties of faithful discharge, um, and then that uh, evolves into the first state constitutions. That many many state constitutions take borrow from the, the colonial charters as as corporate law and make the first state constitutions. And that's an insight that Mary Builder and others um, have started with. You know, connecting American constitutionalism with corporate law backgrounds. Um, and so um, only today, I think we have constructed a more more of a, a false dichotomy between public and private law. Uh, if you look into the history, these the public and private overlapped and borrowed from each other uh, very freely.
0: And corporate law is the place where a lot of that borrowing is most actively going on in the materials that you're talking about in the, and in the context, and and, and in both instances, you, it's because there are groups of people who are trying to create institutions and structures for cooperation over extended periods of time on a common project, and in both instances, you also have sort of the separation of ownership and control to use the contemporary way to talk about the corporate law problem. Um, uh, so that you've got opportunism risks and and those – so, so, so uh, there, it, it's happening in both a, a public and a private setting uh, that that this stuff is happening. Corporate law is a place where it really does come together. Well, and, and if you're trying to solve – Or where it started together.
1: If if you've identified a problem that you're trying to solve, of a, a principal agent problem, right? You're trying – you think someone should be acting on behalf of someone else but there are dangers that they will act in their own interest to the detriment of someone else and you're trying to solve that problem then you have to think about what are your tools what are you know how likely is that problem you know how likely is it to be a problem how bad is the problem and how conducive is the problem to judicial solution shaming legislative you know like all those things but the fact is it's the same problem whether it's government officials or corporate officials or even parents right there's a you know there there is this If it is a principal agent problem, you know, its it's seriousness can be different. It's, you know, how conducive it is to solution by these various mechanisms is different. But, like, it's the
3: same shape, right? Uh, Yeah, I think the principal agent problem is exactly the – is is the framework for both public and private law that fiduciary duties try to address. Now, it's also really important to say that whether it's private – uh, duties or public duties, self interest is not prohibited, right? You, you can act in pursuit of self interest as long as you're not doing it to the detriment right. of the beneficiaries. And in the, so a, a trustee has to, you know, a trustee can act partly in self interest, but as long as it's not harming the beneficiaries. Uh, and so too can a, a president act out of some degree of self interest as long as it's not to the detriment of the public. So it's not, we don't want to portray that, you know, fiduciary law is somehow, you know, uh, um, a uh, 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 socialism or something like that. Right. I mean, yeah, yeah. it's and, and and in fact, I think it's also interesting that's, that so, that some that the people who are gra- who have I think embraced this uh, project or who've been most sympathetic to this project are are lots of conservative scholars. Um, you know, the people who were really mm-hmm. pursuing this uh, this original idea of fiduciary constitutionalism were open. were very open and, and to the connections between private corporate law and public duties. Um, and, and saw that lining up in various ways, I think not just because of certain kinds of conservative payoffs, but also because it fit a worldview that, that, uh, that public obligations can be seen through the lens of, of private law. And what's interesting to me is that many, there are many progressives uh, who've, who, or who are skeptical of this project, um, partly because it is so open to the conversation between public and private law. I think many progressives want to treat, you know, say there's really no room for that kind. Of, they, they want to uh, put limits on the the, the validity of self-interest uh, among public officers, and I think fiduciary law is actually pretty realistic in understanding that we one can have uh, overlapping motives as long as self-interest isn't to the detriment of the beneficiary.
1: Well, let me just let me, let me kind of make a skeptical point. And, um, and this isn't really my point because I've, you know, w- one of my key, you know, works has been, uh, trying to suggest that there is a commonality between public and private law, that there's a, there's a kind of a uniform template that these things are, refra- are refracted through different kind of cooperative lenses. So I, this isn't really my point, but I, I do want to make it and, and see uh, whether this, um, see how it works. So the, the skeptical point would be that the principal agent problems are kind of all over the place and they're, They're different. You know, I try to make it sound like there was a uniformity to them earlier, but of course they're, they're very different problems, you know, uh, parents, kids and corporations and dentists and other, you know, the, you know, the people you expect to act on your behalf in certain situations and, and there's a danger that they won't, but those are, Relatively, you know, there are different situations, and in those different situations, the law has has happened upon different solutions, sometimes for historical reasons, but sometimes there is kind of a Posnerian kind of efficiency of the common law that develops over time where the, the judicial solution to the particular form of principal agent problem becomes specialized in, in maybe an efficient or good way. And sometimes that looks like a very standard-like, all things considered fiduciary, typical fiduciary duty, right, duty of trust and uh, that can be enforced um, with – by judges with relatively broad discretion, and sometimes it takes the form of relatively narrow kind of commands to principles mm-hmm. and and narrow regulations. Sometimes it's mm-hmm. hands off, and so uh, w- one example of this is is in this work, right, where you you identify the um, whether the trust analogy, but you you suggest it's more than an analogy, is the right approach for looking at um, uh, faithful execution by the president. Or, um, you know, some people on the other side have suggested that maybe the um, power of attorney is the better way of looking at it, right? Where the power of attorney and its body of uh, – of the body of law developed around it is, is another kind of attempt to solve a principal agent problem in particular contexts, right? And so the, I guess the skeptical point overall would be that um, there are many situations where we want people to act on behalf of others with varying amounts of self-interest allowed and that the law has developed, you know, kind of rough-and-ready solutions in those particular areas. And so why should we expect that if we just latch onto one of those, just because it has a broad name like fiduciary duty, like why should it necessarily apply in another area rather than some other body of law which has been developed to solve a principal agent problem in some other area? Does that
3: does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, let me, uh, I, I, it makes sense to me. I think I've got some responses. Ethan, did you want to jump in on that?
2: Uh, well, I, I think that one of the things to highlight um that's somewhat responsive to, is to recognize that um fiduciary law ends up actually applying in a variety of different circumstances where we are actually expecting a variety of different kinds of um kind of strictness of enforcement um and so you know to say just kind of try to differentiate among the different relationships is is productive, but it doesn't necessarily suggest that fiduciary law is inappropriate because the, in, in practical terms, uh, fiduciary law has. Kind of enabled itself to apply with some degree of variety to different uh, contexts. So, although the kind of general rules of you know no self dealing and um, you know no profit taking when you're supposed to be pursuing somebody else's interest supervene over all kinds of fiduciary relationships, the strictness with which we are going to interrogate the fiduciary does tend to vary, and and so there's a, there's. It's almost a built-in apparatus to calibrate um, to different kinds of expectations and different kinds of relational contexts. Um, So, I so I mean, part of what this paper does is highlight: look, you could pick different. Kinds of fiduciary relationships: the principal agent is one kind, the trust relationship is another kind, the attorney-client is another kind, the you know corporate director to shareholder is yet another type. Uh, the doctor-patient, we you know didn't quite get around to talking about that, but is is a different one, but uh, but also can be seen in this uh, is part of this kind of paradigm. So. Um, the i think to the extent that you want to have a skeptical response i think the skeptical response could be like once you have all of this variety like is the core still something that we mm-hmm. could really say applies throughout um and there's a lot of debate about that among kind of fiduciary law scholars you know is there one kind of loyalty that we demand in all of these kinds of relationships that we could say that is the core um and you know, some people think so, and other people think you know, it's a bunch of just positive law rules, and we're we're calling it all one thing, but it really is many different things. Um, right. And and so right. it could be that that's what you're kind of get at is well, the 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 power of attorney uh, analogy gets you one set of results and the trust thing gets you another set of results. And what benefit do you get calling all of that fiduciary? I mean, that, I, so that would be the kind of skeptical challenge I might, um, pursue, but I still think you're, you're getting an awful lot. You're getting a very, very rich, um, mm-hmm. jurisprudence that is a, provides a source to understand conceptually, uh, what it is that's, uh, as, you know, as Jed said a minute ago, sort of in the legal ecosystem, trying to understand what, what, Lawyers at the time would have thought about the way these relationships ought to be controlled and constrained um and um and so i you know i'm I still find I'm learning a tremendous amount and and so it's, it pays dividends not because it just produces papers but because I think it really enhances understanding. Um, And, you know, there are intramural debates about which is the better analogy. Is the corporate law analogy better? You know, we're talking a little bit about charters and and corporations a minute ago. You know, is the trust law analogy better? Is it really just like a power of attorney? That's the most recent book by Lawson um, and Seidman. And I I think those intramural debates themselves are pretty illuminating and interesting. Um, But they do all uh, have at the core the, the command of loyalty. Um, And I and I think that's sort of inescapable and the and the irreducible central component um, that is that is kind of non obvious. I mean, in some respects, this mimics uh, a kind you know says. I think if you try to gain adherence uh, in a kind of more familiar vein, you might say something like, look, this is kind of republicanism. This is this is we are expecting public officers to pursue the public interest. Like, is this really a radical claim that you want to resist? And many people will say, well, no, I don't want to resist that, but I'm not sure what you're adding. But what you're adding is a, is a mechanics of I- enforcement. But I put enforcement in quotations here, uh, which you can't see because we're not on video. <laughs> um, because, because the enforcement mechanisms are multiple, that it's not just you walk into court and tell the judge, hey, you got to enforce this fiduciary against this fiduciary default. Um, it, it, the entire structure ends up being an apparatus to enforce against fiduciary default. So impeachment might be seen as a way of, I mean, Nadelson just had a, a, a post up at the uh, Federalist Society. Uh, blog or whatever it is, um, explaining all the ways in which uh, the impeachment clause is meant to kind of cross-refer to the enforcement of uh, fiduciary default. Elections can be seen as a way of Uh, enforcing fiduciary default. And so, um, you know, the background here is not just, oh, it's it's just good old republicanism that we're familiar with. It's republicanism with a variety of design features that it turns out like look a lot like the apparatus of fiduciary law. And that's illuminating and interesting and trying to figure out how all those pieces come together is, you know, a project for not, you know, just this paper, but many papers to come.
1: So Jed, we want to get your take too, but uh, but just to, uh, to inject something there, like yeah. w- one thing you might ask add to the skepti- skepticism is that, well, if you're going to tap, you know, you're you're tapping into this body of law essentially to create kind of a it's it's not a make but it but it's a it's a rhetorical argument in favor of assigning to a particular institution here judges right. Right. the uh, ability to to coerce other institutions based on their own evaluation of the public interest.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that is that is perhaps the biggest payoff uh, of this argument uh, is, is to examine uh, to, to, to what extent uh, the history points towards courts uh, being one of the the location in you know, one one locus uh, of enforcing students Je- just this so, is Joe ahead.
0: so uh, you know when when um uh, just on this very specific point uh, when when Ethan was talking about you know the the public interest and Um, you know, for me as someone who doesn't do this fiduciary law theorizing or, or the thing, the public law things that are most closely connected to it. And so I'm coming at it from a slightly different angle. And, and it seems to me that the, maybe one of the reasons why this is such a fruitful area of conversation right now, uh, is in, in a sort of, um, you know, the legal process consensus of the 50s and 60s gets shattered mm-hmm. by public choice, right. by law and economics, and by critical legal studies. Right. And part of that shattering process is um, putting, uh, I mean, talk about skepticism. It's it's sort of a battery asset of skepticism on the judicial role, uh, especially in, in figuring out what to do about um, public institutions. And to the degree that there are ways to have that conversation about the judicial role in public institutions that that can look to some uh, traditional mm-hmm. approaches, some established rules of the road, some things that look like, you know, stuff about which you could have a restatement of law, right? That, that all feels a bit less like, you know um, – Richard Posner swinging from the chandeliers, just yes. imposing his power, right? <laughs> right? And and a little bit more like, okay, there's sort of an orderliness to this yes. stuff, and yes. you don't have to believe all the hokiest w- remarks from opinions of the 1890s to think that there's something – there's a here here that people could w- – a little more calmly grasp onto and, and try to restore at least a little bit of the, some of the, the, the equanimity, um, if, if of the, the legal process consensus can't really recapture yeah. it, but I, that, because I, there's I, been too much shattering, absolutely. but
3: I think that's a terrific uh, point, And I think it's, a, it's something that's been, been driving this project. And you know, I think my interest, I, I've, I've kind of jumped back into originalism as an historian, um, uh, I, th- I think that we're we're in a bit of a crisis uh, of 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 legal of, within our rule of law world, um, uh, where we have so many arguments that are driven by the, t- the 2016 2018 moment and distrust of both sides. Simply, may, you know, talk about faithfulness and faithful execution. Both sides thinking that the other side is making bad faith arguments that they're just making up on the fly. And one one, one side
1: is correct, by the way,
3: <laughs> right? but. But you know, I, well, I have to tell you, I, you know, I, I'm sympathetic to to want, you know, to, to certain sides, you know, to certain side here. But I, I see bad faith arguments being made by both sides, um, and, or at least some concerns. Uh, not that all of them are, but I, you know, I think we really do have a, a crisis of of trust, um, within these legal arguments, and it really is a, an advantage to be able to say, look, here's a pre-existing set of facts, um. Here's a pre-existing body of fiduciary law, and here is a pre-existing historical record where we can understand the this is a bit of, a, you know, borrowing from Scalia's view of originalism, that we can go back to the text in its context. Now, I don't follow Scalia's application of originalism, but I think his core understanding in, in his book, "A Matter of Interpretation," is to put limits on the convenience of discretion and the convenience of legal arguments driven by politics to go back to a certain uh, set of, um, of, of facts we can point to that are independent of partisanship. Um, and so that's part, that's, that's I think, uh, one advantage of this combination of historical methods uh, and, and trying to be true and faithful, if you will, um, to the, to those historical records. Um, so I think it's, it's, it would be also helpful for me to just walk through, I think, what the steps of that argument are, uh, to, that essentially, it's to locate in the text of the Constitution some signals, so uh, the words of faithful execution of the take care clause. It's also worth. It, it's important to note that it is the take care clause. Uh, the word uh, Ethan and I think that the word care of take care is not accidental. Um, that care is one of the signals. Care is one of the core invocations of fiduciary duties, along with loyalty. Um, the word trust uh, that comes up four times in our Constitution. uh, In the context of fiduciary law, it's also a signal of uh, and and both as what trusts are, but also the the concept of trust and loyalty. And then you have faithfulness. So it's not just that these words are fiduciary signals; they also tell us, in and of themselves, what core concerns in fiduciary law the founders were the most interested in putting into the Constitution: the ideas of loyalty through trust, the ideas of care and faith. Faith to whom? Um, faith to the public? Faith to uh, faith to the laws? Um, faith, faith to those who created them? So, uh, so that's that's one step, and then um, and then it's it's a process of taking you know the core notions within those signals, and and I, I don't think we are Ethan and I are, are focusing on you know, what is the right instrument we're looking at. We're saying, look, you're, what are the core concepts of uh, of fiduciary law, and it's most at its core. Um, a rule against self deal right? It's a rule against self-interest, against be- benefit to the detriment of beneficiaries. And then we take the next step, where could we apply this? Um, where does it seem like uh, officers or the president can, uh, can use powers that are the most self-dealing? And we start with self-pardons. Uh, self-pardon seems to be the most pa- a paradigmatic uh, moment where a president can use a power for his or her own benefit uh, to self-deal with that power to the detriment of the public. And then the next step would be to look at the pardons of co-conspirators to be able to buy their silence as also self-protective. And another uh, aspect of this that we are looking at for our next paper, or two papers down the road, um, is firing other officials to also protect oneself. Um oh. uh, so so removal. So is, the removal power. The removal power. Um, and and so so if the pardon power, which is textual, should be constrained. Right, the pardon power is actually in the Constitution. Many people don't realize that the removal power is is not in, is never mentioned explicitly, but is a construction from the first Congress, from the deba- or from the, the debates in the first Congress, uh, where this question um, is debated and 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 resolved, and the courts construct from quote. The decision of 1789 that the president has uh, has has removal power without um, the removal consent uh, of the Senate, Um, and I think and and one more step is just to say that as we're looking in these documents um, uh, and and judicial records, we're seeing that courts in England and in America will take the language of faithful execution from statutes or faithful discharge from statutes, and will use that in in court proceedings to inform them of what do the duties of officers have and, and will hold them to higher duties in judicial proceedings um, to the duties of good faith. Um, so so the, there is at least a historical record where courts that had cases about public officers and their duties relied on this concept, um, relied on that language as part of the way that they, they resolved this question. So you make an interesting...
1: Argument in the paper that I, I want to hear a little bit more about, and um, so let's set aside the remedy question because one obvious question is: even if these fiduciary ideas are in the Constitution, I- I- even if they are uh, meant to be kind of legal rules, the question is: you know, is is politics the remedy, or or was it? Mm-hmm. Is there an assignment to judges to to manage at least some of this? But set that. Let's bracket that. I do want to come back to it before we. A- and before if we close. judges
0: who would have standing to raise because uh, even exactly, that has some yeah, complications, um, right?
1: Who has agenda control? But. Um, uh but but there's also this um I think there's an argument in the in, in the paper that that um well you know how the, the uh the Constitution doesn't clearly contain its own method of interpretation, right? It doesn't contain an explicit meta interpretive um command. And so, the choice of interpretation you know this is why people argue like should we use originalism, should we use something else and and um uh, but you make an argument in the paper that that maybe in this case um i think you make this argument in the paper, you tell me if i'm wrong um, that the way that they invoke fiduciary law suggests uh suggests a um a kind of i don't know constitutional command may be too strong, but it suggests a constitutional direction to look at historical. Um, to, to to look at a historical moment, Is, do I have that wrong? I, maybe it's through the intertextualism, but yeah. the way that they write that in there suggests uh, that a, that a kind of originalism might be appropriate here, even if it's not uh, the the general and only interpretive principle that the Constitution commands. What otherwise. Do you, What do you mean when you well, say here? It, 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 well, in, in the you know, president shall faithfully execute the laws, right? Like the scope to of take that. care, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. That 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 that, invocate that text somehow. Um, invokes a kind of historical law that would suggest that the proper interpretive technique here is a, is an is an historical one, even if the Constitution doesn't command an historical approach in e- each and every case. So you don't have to be an originalist right. to buy the original argument here. Do, do I have that wrong that you uh, suggest? I that think that's
3: I, I, that makes sense to me. I think maybe that I think that may also tie into the. Um, to the non-delegation part of the paper as well, uh, where there's, we I think Ethan and I are addressing how to understand the historical evolution question, which is which is also another kind of originalism that isn't original expectations um, or, or a narrow kind of originalism. I'll take one crack at this, but I'd invite Ethan to as well. Um, once you once there's a signal that draws on on, on fiduciary law, that body of law is a, is a law that is historical. It's a it evolves. It's kind of a common law evolution. Uh, and so, once you tie the Constitution to uh, to a body to a common law body of fiduciary duties, then, then there is a, a significance to understanding what that moment, what that history is, what ha- and, and what that body of law, what, what their understanding was. So, when they write into the Constitution fiduciary law, um, they have their own uh, historical understanding of that's and and uh, and so that both means that that history is important, and also that it's evolution over time. It's not that it's fixed, right? It's not like fiduciary law can only mean this one thing. It means that we that they're tethering the constitution and its evolution and its interpretation to the to the evolving body of fiduciary law. Ethan, does that make sense?
2: Yeah. Although I just, I mean, I I don't I, I didn't take us to be. Suggesting uh, in any way that there's some kind of signal that this should be done in any originalist fashion. I mean, part of what we are responding to in this paper is uh, this book that we've been talking about by Lawson and Seidman. And they claim that the original interpretive convention of fiduciary instruments at the time of the founding was, you know, construe delegations or any authorizations strictly and not liberally. and they get they, that gives them most of what they want, which is you know the government's powers are to be strictly construed. I mean, this is why conservatives are so attracted to the fiduciary instrument model. It's you know, I mean, a lot of this comes out of their theory about the necessary and proper clause. Their prior book is about the necessary and proper clause. Uh, the idea there is you know Congress has very limited. You know, we think of it as a plenary power now, but boy, are we wrong? It's a fiduciary power, and fiduciary powers are meant to be construed strictly. So. And I I mean, I think this is kind of absurd. I mean, I, I don't think this is, I mean, first of all, I don't think, as you said a moment ago, the interpretive conventions, whether those were meant to be incorporated is obviously a big debate, um, right? There's, there's originalism and then there's original conventions originalism of the sort of McGuinness-Rappaport mm-hmm. variety. And, you know, it's a totally different kind of argument to get that off the ground. Um, but one of the things we highlight in this paper is that Lawson and Seidman actually are explicit that it's kind of uh, incumbent upon you if you're going to identify a fiduciary to identify the, the, the beneficiary. So who's the beneficiary? Lawson and Seibin tell us the beneficiary is, you uh, know, we the people and our posterity. So, and so I just, the, the paper makes, observes that if you're going to concede that the beneficiary is posterity, that is something forward looking, the idea that you would be stuck in time to mm-hmm. c- care about only at the moment of the founding and that the government's power should be strictly construed as of the moment of origination, that doesn't really make sense if you take the beneficiary seriously to be posterity. Um, and so the, it's that posterity as beneficiary that invites uh what you might call living constitutionalism it's
1: it's an originalist invocation of a of a of a living body of law like, yeah. right so it's a meta 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 thing yeah I think. yeah this is on page 20 to 21 of the paper if you guys are wondering what we're talking about but which yeah.
0: just means it to, to me as a reader it's yeah. it struck me as not being about originalism as much as it was about common law constitutionalism and if you yeah. at at moment a it were you know at time zero if you say this is a common law concept. Um, of course, you're linking yourself to the existing body of common law cases that articulate principles, um, but you're also linking yourself to the fact that they can continue to develop and change as needed in the institutional setting in which those things are elaborated.
1: Um, you just put I don't
3: that better than I Yeah, that's great.
1: But, but the argument is that at the time of the founding, they were pointing to something. Yeah. And they were pointing to something which was dynamic, right? And so the, the originalist move is to say that what is that original pointer is what matters, right? Rather than well, I, 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 every time I read the text,
0: well, you come can I mean away. you can say it's what matters, but if what you're pointing to is a thing that's dynamic, as you yourself just articulated, if if what if what you pointed to is a thing that's dynamic, you're pointing both to it. And it's dynamism. You don't get one without the other. Yeah, so I don't, right. I don't we're, understand. We're heavily what, into Larry Solom territory now, um, <laughs> right? Because like right. He, he would agree with uh, like that. that I, I actually think it's Will Bode territory, not Larry well, Solom territory.
1: It's but, also uh, but, Jeff
3: Powell territory. I mean, it's the, the original, <laughs> under, I mean, this goes back, you know, 20, 25 years, 30 years ago, is that the original understanding of original meaning was, you know, that, they, that they, there was a, a breadth to these words um, and that they were. Uh, not willing to resolve specific meaning in the in the Constitution, and they understood it would be worked. At. The original understanding was that courts and future generations would continue to work out these principles.
1: Now, Larry would call this con- the construction zone, right? That yeah. there is this, yeah. yeah.
3: Now, am I misremembering,
0: um, are you guys the ones who dropped a footnote slagging any trust law a little bit? Or Was that the paper we read the other day, now i can 't remember <laughs> do you have some sort of um s- slightly snarky antitrust law footnote
2: well no i don 't know that it 's snarky it's it's meant to be used as an example of what is conventionally taken to be sort of a meta intent to develop through the ages in other words, you re- you know in other words the c- the Congress that passes antitrust law writes it vaguely and law- in in broad terms and thinly and not pr- not with prolixity does so, uh, again, this is the conventional view, it may be incorrect, but it is the conventional view uh, that Congress sets in motion a kind of common law of antitrust so that the courts are meant to sort of take it and run with it.
0: Yeah. And the, which the Supreme Court itself has said, um, so uh, I agree with you. It's a conventional view. I mean, I do think it's the right view. There's a better example uh, where that the statement about common law development is more emphatic and explicit in its federal rule of evidence 501 about privileges. Um, I mean that that is, but it's both a statute. It's Congress a deep pool. passed the Federal Rules of Evidence. Um, they didn't leave that to the Rules Committee process because they didn't like the Rules Committee process rule on privileges, right? So it's this very part of the Federal Rules of Evidence that Congress did not like uh, in 1975, post Nixon. So Congress enacts the Federal Rules of Evidence as a statute, and and 501 says go forth and use the common law, explicitly. Uh, to develop the law of privileges in federal court. So, uh, I think antitrust law, though, is another. It's a great example. The Sherman Act is sort of a charter, um, and and in Legion against Creative, uh, the Supreme Court has said this is a, this is explicitly a common law delegation.
1: Can I make a suggestion here, though? Since sure. We we don't have unlimited time. <laughs> I want to talk about I, I want to talk about pardons,
3: and I want to talk about standing in pardons because that was something that you flagged. Let, let's let's
1: talk about parts let either of you guys whoever wants to talk about it I, I, i'm sorry am i cutting you off joe are you mad
0: at me are no you gonna, i'm not mad at all
1: oh oh boy
0: <laughs> oh boy <laughs> we'll see we'll we'll see I'm, look i'm just living i'm grieving the fact that there is not infinite time i'm just i'm in a, i'm in a moment of grief right now and that's fine it'll oh, pass yeah well this this is this is
1: what it is to this is what it is to become fully human is to appreciate the finitude of time yeah To yeah. to
2: live
0: is to die
1: Boys. Let's proceed. Boys. And this is okay. a time so,
2: capsule. So. Before we proceed with our like two hour discussion on pardons and uh, et cetera, <laughs> let me just to close Joe's point. I don't think that the antitrust point there was meant to be snarky. I think. I think we used the word ironically, which, you know, doesn't ever really mean ironically, but it was because we're just, <laughs> we're just talking about the trust. And so, you know, we're talking about trust law, and then it turns out that the example of another situation where we have this meta-intent is antitrust, you know, trust and antitrust. Uh, see, okay. So now I'm, I get I, the ironic. Re- yeah, so okay. that really didn't come through. And so, you know, in the editorial <laughs> process, we'll, we'll resolve that. Uh, That issue, but it was definitely not meant to be snarky. It was just meant to be awesome and clever. It's just meta ironic, is what it is. Yeah.
3: We need to add like the burn emoji uh, to the to the text of the paper, or or at
0: least italicize the the syllables "anti" and "antitrust," and then and then someone who's a total moron like me will finally get it. I actually teach antitrust law, so that I I, that's why it hit me as a bit of slagging because I'm like, hey, what do you mean? Antitrust is great. What are they talking? It's not ironic. It's great. (laughs) <laughs> yeah but yeah <laughs> okay that's <laughs> like, that was ironic
2: was in the previous sentence we were talking about trusts and now we're talking about antitrust so that's it yes
1: yeah, so i was i was thinking the same thing that it would be great if you could teach both the law if you, if you called your fiduciary law course the law of trust and you also taught antitrust law it would be mm. be pretty cool right yeah
2: our colleague zephyr teach out is sort of in this space right now though
1: that's true yeah, yeah she yeah. might
2: be distracted right this moment as she's running for attorney general but when she gets back, I mean, the the antitrust and trust stuff, um, I think, is a connection she's really definitely working on.
1: When she gets back, who
3: knows? I mean, this... You, it's, uh, right, you know.
2: right. I mean, from her yeah. presidency, you know, what do I know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or we could add her
3: as a fourth co-author, as, you know, president, teach-out. Mm-hmm. I, yeah.
1: I like the optimism. We, we might indeed have another president. That's, that's, for, that's an optimistic take.
0: Does she host teach-ins? That would be a little confusing. <laughs>
1: no, don't. <damn. laughs>
0: we don't go for the obvious takes joe
1: i do <laughs> okay. i'm a moron i've already said it, it would be pretty
2: pretty ironic <laughs> there's that oh, word again oh so
0: self-pardons it's amazing to me this self-pardon nonsense bananas ridiculousness is has is now a subject of widespread conversation lots of great blog posts lots of great uh op-eds I mean, this, it's bananas. Okay, let's let me, just start let's, there. Let's ask, let's, let's ask either of you wants to talk about it. So,
1: so why is it that if, if it could be conceived in the public interest for Ford to pardon Nixon, why it could not also be conceived in the public interest for Nixon to pardon Nixon, and why it should be up to a court to distinguish between those things?
3: People, This has been one pushback on our paper, which is to say that it is, it is plausible that there could be a public publicly interested self part. And, and and so is it is is it obvious uh, that every self pardon would be a self dealing against the against the public benefit against the the public interest uh, and, and self dealing violation? Uh, yeah, it's it's plausible. I mean, one could argue that there could be a self pardon where it's part of the deal for a Nixon to leave office, uh, and it benefits the public. And so I think there there may be two responses: is one, yeah, let's let's litigate that. Right? Let's, Fine. Let's if if the president pardons himself, and then the next president comes in with the DOJ and a new prosecutor who then goes into court and in, you know with an indictment or an arrest, you know, uh, an indictment itself. And then President Nixon had walked into court with his piece of self-pardon paper. Um, That's I mean, first of all, I think that addresses the standing question. This is how one would address the standing problem: is the prosecutor would go through uh, an indictment process anyway, and then uh, the the prosecutor can make a, a motion to uh, to disregard the pardon or, or uh, ask the, the court to um, to disregard the pardon or uh, when it's invoked by Nixon, um, that could be the objection by the prosecutor. And then there can be uh, an argument about whether this violated the faithful execution um, of the office in terms of the oath or the or that the laws were not uh, faithfully executed under the take care clause. Um, so it's, it, that's one way for this to be resolved. Um, another could be a prophylactic rule, which is to say, President can never self pardon because it's just too it's it, it because it is so much of a of a use of a power to, to uh, as a be- to benefit the president that it would have to be the successor like a Ford who'd have to make that decision of faithful execution for and
1: and that would be that would be one way of kind of crystallizing so so if you think there is this fiduciary um, uh, law kind of intent in the Constitution or that was you know how it was written or that was the vision then one way to realize that uh, through rules and yet not give too much power to judges is to have a few like core yeah. violations flagged rule. like Because what made me a little bit nervous in the paper was the suggestion uh, um, that the uh, – it was, it was the argument about the RPO, um, sure. uh pardon, right? Because that depended on a certain vision of what our democracy is about. Um, and you would give to judges, admittedly like a hierarchy of judges because this thing could be appealed, but you would give to judges the question of, of whether the, the Arpaio pardon was for kind of democratically salutary reasons. And that, that like, you know, giving the administration of those reasons to, to judges raises certain obvious problems, right?
3: Yeah, well, let's I mean, let's look at what courts have said, what judges have said about the pardon power. Taking one step back from, let's say, the you know the controversy of of, of an Arpaio pardon, but just to take a step back, um, you know, first of all, in the '70s, the court had a decision called shit, where it, it, in dicta it said it suggested that um, even though Congress couldn't limit the pardon power, um, the Constitution itself uh, limits the pardon power. Just in the same way that all of the powers granted in the Constitution also have to be read intertextually with the limits. So, so one example was that uh, Justice O'Connor. Uh, at some point said, well, what if a president used a pardon power by flipping a coin and issuing pardons based upon a coin uh, coin flip? And in concurrence, she says, well, that would vi- that would um, run afoul of certain constitutional principles. Now, it's a-, a concurrence and it's in dicta, so she doesn't work it all out. But I think there's, a- there's at least a-, a concern that justices have expressed um, that I think highlights the, the way that um, uh, rationality and fairness, and perhaps equal protection, right? All limit the pardon power. Uh, yeah.
1: So l- let me let me interject then. So so if Congress passes a law saying that the president uh, any pardons issued by the president, which are uh, in, in, which are racially discriminatory or in a racially discriminatory manner, somehow you write this, yeah, are are of no effect or void. Um, uh, <laughs> Why can't? Con- if, if Schick if the, would say if,
3: Schick would say that the, the the Schick dicta would would suggest that that's not Congress's role. Schick would say that 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 the, that it has to be based upon the Fourteenth Amendment itself. Exactly, and, but right.
1: there, but Section Five of the Fourteenth Amendment yeah. gives Congress gives yeah, yeah, Congress this power. True. So it's that's a true. real problem, right? Despite yeah. what we will now forever call the Schickta. <laughs> uh,
3: uh, yeah, maybe. Uh, <laughs> That's possible, Uh, uh, but I would, you know, I'd say probably that, you know, under our, under the 14th, uh, under the 14th Amendment Section 5 jurisprudence about proportionality and congruence, you know, that you'd have to, you'd have to, you'd have to make sure that that proportionality and congruence would would go as far as that. And, and I, I don't know. I think we're already stretching the body. Uh, we like an
0: historical, yeah. So absent an historical record of presidents granting pardons on racially discriminatory grounds, Congress wouldn't have the power.
3: I think but, that's but, right. But, 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 but yeah, uh, go ahead. Go ahead, I've got so many one, thoughts, one more, we're going to get through it all. But, yeah. One more question about Arpaio is, Does it, it, was the Arpaio pardon a signal? And at the time, right, in the same way that, you know, it's Arpaio, it's Scooter Libby, it's uh, you know it's it's the, the, the potential pardon to Bl- Blagojevich and whether these pardons were you know uh, meant to signal uh, to co-conspirators that they should um, not cooperate with Mueller because if if if, if Trump were willing to pardon uh, someone as, as as controversial as Dinesh D'Souza or uh, and signal pardons of people for false statement or obstruction of justice. Um, that they were really driven to uh, signal pardons to co-conspirators, um, it would raise an en- it would raise those questions. Now, you know, Ethan and I aren't pushing this. You know, I think we're trying to be careful in this paper of you know we're saying here are potential arguments. But again, I want to emphasize that I think it's important with this uh, with with barring from fiduciary law to stick to some of the core concepts and the core violations. Um, so let s- me right. let
0: me try to do that with this question. So, but, and not a self-pardon question, but but um is it d- does faithful execution of the office the promise in the oath make it much easier under your understanding of faithful execution drawing on fiduciary law does it make it much easier to uh, to understand why um someone purchasing a pardon from the president with cash right. is um is that's an, a constitutionally defective Pardon.
3: Right. I mean, I think the analysis up until now has been the president could issue a pardon for a bribe and and the assumption has been that pardon beca- because there's a misperception that the pardon power is somehow absolute, that 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 a bribed pardon would be still a valid pardon for the recipient. But that the president, whether or not
0: there was a criminal uh, prohibition what, on the bribery itself,
3: whether or not there's a, a criminal prohibition, even if, let's say there was a, you know, a bribery statute. And, and uh, but there is an assumption, and I think that the assumption is wrong, that the person receiving the bribed pardon would still have an have a valid pardon, even if the president could be impeached, removed and prosecuted for bribery or, or obstruction of justice. And this and, is the yeah. And this
0: is the Schick model, because it is the Constitution that is limiting the pardon power in this
3: respect. That's yeah, I think that's right. But, I, I, you know, the, the thing that, that uh, is complicated here. Um, is uh, there's more historical record that um, treating the pardon power as somehow more absolute than other powers granted. Um, You know, there's no textual basis. There's no textual basis for treating the pardon power as somehow more absolute and unconstrained than other powers that are granted by the Constitution. Um, And and so an example of that is is Joseph Story's commentaries, um, where he, he, he points out that um, contempt of court and contempt of Congress are not pardonable. Well, it doesn't say so in the text of the Constitution, but, but Story, close enough to the founding, um, indicates that, 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 okay, well, the pardon power has limits that, that uh, you might not have spotted uh, just from the four corners of the document. And he even says in the next paragraph, Story says there actually might be similar kinds of concerns that could, that restrain the pardon power. Um, and he doesn't explore that, but but Story himself is telling us that the pardon power is not absolute. Um, and is it but, right. Yeah, that's true. But the
1: legislature is supposed to be represented. Now, there's not a fiduciary concept in the grant of legislative power other than representativeness, I think. But but the remedy for, you know, if you found out that the entire House of Representatives was bribed when they passed the big tax cut, maybe not so far-fetched, but, uh, <laughs> but they, you know, then... Like, the remedy for that is generally thought to be, one, elections, you know, no one thinks that the law is invalid because of the bribery, but right. all of them yeah. are potentially culpable for the bribery, right? Yeah, and in fact, um, Fletcher
3: versus Peck, you know, the, the, the Yazoo land fraud, uh, you know, that you could prosecute the legislators for bribery, but you couldn't undo the land grant. You, you couldn't, couldn't undo Fletcher the law. So that's, it's a very good point. Um I you know
1: whereas in 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 um well, like so, right. so if you find out that a judge who sentenced who sentenced a defendant was bribed, um, the defendant has a remedy, but that's because the defendant's particular rights were violated in a proceeding where um, uh, w- where those rights were guaranteed, right? It's it's yeah. it's, in a, in, in, it's it's not that the uh, judge would,
0: somehow lost authority, and it wouldn't be a fr- it wouldn't be a right to be set free; it would be a right to be resentenced, right. Presumably. Right. Well, if that, if, let me if let me give you another
3: bribery. example. I mean, what about what about an appointment? Right. The, the Constitution grants a power to appoint. It's uh, to nominate, and so the president for a bribe, like you know, Blagojevich gets a bribe to appoint so and so to nominate so and so. You know, the the both the governor can be prosecuted, but the person who got the nomination through the bribe, not only could they be prosecuted, there would also be a mechanism for undoing the appointment. Um, no. So uh, uh, maybe retirement. Well, I guess I guess that that's right. It could be another process um, that that is um, direct to the office. But, uh, but
1: uh, and yeah, because our intuitions are, are like I think are, are different in these different cases about what the remedy should be. Maybe they're not. Maybe there are some people who think that if if you can show bribery made the difference in a particular legislative passage, that the law should be struck down. Obviously, it was. Uh, um, but if our intuitions are different, there must be some principle that's causing well maybe there's not a principle i don't want to go to human cognition here, but there might be a principle right which suggests um, what you know when we 're going to look at self interested reasons as voiding the action taken because of them, and when the remedy for that will be to punish the actor who acted in a self interested way without undoing the action and i'm not sure um, i mean does fiduciary law supply that i mean is there you know, is there I don't know that there's a way of saying the legislature, legislators aren't fiduciaries. Maybe it's the multiplicity of legislators, whereas the president is singular. And so maybe there's a particular attraction of the fiduciary model for like unitary executive types because like you know, the 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 president's reasons like in a legislature the reasons are kind of diffused among a bunch of people and they're therefore maybe more discoverable to the um uh, to the people who are representative who are represented. Whereas the president's reasons are, can be more private and harder to observe. I, I, I'm just thinking out loud here. Well,
2: I mean, I would just say about this that, um, I mean, fiduciary law has a kind of multiplicity of remedies. I mean, the kind of conventional remedy is disgorgement, a kind of, which is a kind of restitutionary remedy. But you can surely imagine certain kinds of transactions being unwound, self-dealing transactions being unwound rather than paid for if they're caught in time or if they're easy to unwind. Um, I wouldn't I, – I mean – I haven't uh, taken the view in other work that uh, legislators aren't fiduciaries. And um, there was a, an article uh, several years ago in the Harvard Law Review by Teddy Rave called Politicians as Fiduciaries. I mean, it's it's not like this concept hasn't been applied to representatives, uh, kind of your plain vanilla uh, uh, political representative. So, I, I mean – I think that you have the, the problem of unwinding ends up being harder for the reasons you described a moment ago, which is, you know, suppose the adulteration of the deliberative legislative process is through a few people, you know, would you unwind everything because of those few bad apples? And so there you have a sort of practical question and, um, and usually courts kind of are thinking about the equities as they think about what the right... Uh, remedy is. I mean, there, there are examples where um, c- corporate directors violate their fiduciary obligations. It turns out it doesn't really harm the underlying beneficiaries. But they still want to somehow uh, punish them, and so they kind of award attorneys' fees, or they create some kind of method of um, providing uh, a clear signal that this is fiduciary default, even though disgorgement doesn't exactly work because the um, the beneficiaries weren't actually harmed in the in the grand scheme of things. So. Um, I don't, I don't know whether you think, uh, workability, practicability, administrability are actually, um, the principles you're looking for, but I don't think it takes it out of kind of fiduciarity that sometimes you're getting voiding of transactions. Sometimes you're getting paying for the benefit that, that you've taken from your beneficiary. And then sometimes you're getting, well, your attorney, we're going to pay the attorney's fees of the beneficiary for bringing this to light, even though they really weren't harmed, but it was in fact a fiduciary default
3: but in, in corporate law i mean this is coming up now with the work on quoranto right i mean there, there are statutes that will dissolve for, so for example a, 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 in, under new york under you know 49 states have statutes that say that if a corporation is has has a pattern of acting ultra virus and one example is a pattern of fraud that the uh, that the state can dissolve the corporation this is the Trump. This is this is the nonprofit uh, angle of that is using the stat, the nonprofit statute, but there's a there's a, a for-profit corporation statute that has the same wording. Um, so, yeah, so you can. I mean, it, well, the idea though is that you could actually you know not just punish the wrongdoer, but also dissolve the fiduciary in, if the the fiduciary instrument.
1: As Ethan was talking, I, I remembered, of course, I've taught some of these cases in land use where um, various. Land use um, various like city council decisions or planning commission decisions would be overturned when when a member who would make a mathematical difference had a conflict of interest. Um, you know it, this very kind of fiduciary language about conflict of interest mm. um, and th- and then the cases are all about whether the courts think you know um, even if it wouldn 't have made a mathematical difference in the vote should you nonetheless overturn it because of the danger that they infected the process is that exactly the kind of thing that you would you would you would think about and and it occurs to me that in those cases you know what makes those cases somewhat complicated is that um, uh, is that usually they are like permit type decisions where there is a particular homeowner or someone else who is on um, whose interests are, are, are deeply affected by the decision, right, or directly affected. And so the, the fiduciary relation is like much more obvious, like that particular person was owed a duty of no conflict from these representatives. Whereas in general legislation, it seems like a harder, you know, I don't know if it's a standing issue. I don't, I'm trying to reach here to figure out, um, like Ethan said, maybe it's, it's several different principles that I'm trying to latch on to.
0: And this is, again, to try to get at the issue about, even if it's a violation, what do we do about it? Or, or are you trying to right. say, is it even a violation? Well, like, and let which, me hear,
3: let, Yeah, but let me give you one yeah. more textual answer for this, which is, you know, we're talking before about what, what would a bribery statute do to a constitutional use of a power? And, that, and then, it, you know, you'd have to go outside the Constitution to find the statutory crime. That would be the basis for invalidating the the nomination or the the pardon. Here, you don't have to turn to a statute. It is in the Constitution itself the oblig- that both the oath and in the take care clause um, that that constrains the power. So the argument is that the when the pardon was given without, uh, from within the text of the Constitution, it was a faithless execution of that power, and so that power was never done validly.
1: Well, is, you know, then the question is: Is it? Should it, should it be considered void? Does, does, really, we're asking, does a court have the power to countermand the pardon, or is the remedy for Congress to impeach for faithless execution um, in the absence of some statute, which would also compound uh, the liability of the president?
0: And I don't know that we necessarily would want to answer that question the same way in the case of purchased pardon and in mm-hmm. the case of self-pardon. Uh, the uh, the implications of of might be different, and therefore might they they might have different answers. Actually,
1: yeah, self pardon seems to me to be easier um, to countermand. But, yeah, but I don't know if it's on fiduciary grounds. I mean, the thing is, I totally buy the fiduciary. I, I I buy your argument that there is a fiduciary, <laughs> um, there is a fiduciary law of, of 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 the president built into the Constitution. It seems I, I was very much persuaded by your argument. It's the remedy part that I think gets thorny. do
2: you know, I don't think this particular paper takes a certain, I mean, I, I think we have instincts about it, but I, I think, you know, this is one of these areas where reasonable people can differ. I mean, there's lots of reasons to think impeachment was the relevant remedy for fiduciary defaults. And then there's other reasons to think that courts were con, were, were pretty routinely enforcing the fiduciary obligations of office. And so, you know, how do you dispose of this as a as an originalist matter, you would just, you know, I guess look at a lot of different things framers and founders said at the time of the ratifications. Um, but if you were more of a living constitutionalist, you might take account of other modalities of constitutional interpretation. And so, I, I mean, this paper, I think, is kind of largely um, originalist in its methodology. Um, that is, it's trying to decide the questions to the extent possible in in an originalist mode. I think they are probably indeterminate on this question of remedy. Um, But then I don't think this paper makes the effort to spell out what the right answer should be as a matter of constitutional interpretation. I think that that's going to be a conversation we're still going to have as we wait and see whether this is really going to happen
0: the the remedy question could also be um, affected by or the remedy answer uh, uh, could be affected by the degree to which one thinks the um, the illegality of self-pardoning is overdetermined. I mean, uh, you know, for example, uh, Eric Muller has this series of posts at Faculty Lounge about the the language the constitutional language well, you said, is. You said Derek Muller, right? I said Eric Muller because the person I'm talking about is Eric Muller. Oh, okay, um, and it's um, uh, it's about the fact that the constitutional not the language gives of the Mueller
1: mic. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Gives yeah. the power Eric.
0: to grant pardons, um, and grants are things you give uh, to others, not to yourself. Just well, linguistically. Yeah. Well, to, um, to, so
3: yeah, but McConnell. I mean, I, there's parts of McConnell's. Michael McConnell wrote you know, a response, some of which is flawed uh on on the point that we cared about on the, the ratification you know, the, the conventions the ratification debates but but what one thing that mcconnell did is he dug into some fiduciary documents and found that one that there are examples where people created trusts in which they granted to themselves aspects uh, some of the benefits of the trust so uh, with the word grant so even though i think Mueller maybe you know maybe correct that the word grant is the, the most common use is yeah What what grants to others? I mean, but but still And and
0: his reply, his reply to to McConnell about the fact that, you know, if if Speaker Ryan were to defenestrate a a frustrating uh, colleague and to say that, well, you know, we have the power to expel members. Um, And that's when I threw this person out the third story window. That's all I was doing. Uh, So so, you know, you can't call me to answer for that in court. Um, ex- except you know, there, ex- there were- but
3: that's a expel has a legal meaning and then a colloquial a broader colloquial meaning um, here within the world of the the legal word of the legal the way that the word is grant is used within different legal contexts sometimes has the this meaning to grant to oneself and no one is suggesting that the pardon power is generally used to self pardon it would be an exceptional use but yeah. would it fit within the exceptional uses of the word grant yeah we have some exceptional uses of the word grant. Um, in trust documents. I, I, yeah, I so we're it's... not going to
0: be we're not going to be able to escape the fact that uh, when we're when we're debating the meaning of the text, um, we're going to have to make judgments about mm-hmm. uh, all sorts of things, including uh, the typicality of of that particular construction. Uh, in addition to the grant language, I think you guys suggest uh, you point to in the paper the notion that um, you you might think there's a an emolument problem mm-hmm. uh, with self pardoning um, that the only emolument the president can receive from the United States is his salary. Uh, and if he were to self-pardon, he would be giving himself an emolument in his capacity as mm. the president of the United States. Um, and he can't receive an emolument from the United States other than his salary. Um, so but there's there's a bunch can, of – He can pardon other people
1: who – are forbidden from receiving emoluments, right?
0: Well, maybe not. I mean, if that argument is correct, then maybe there are some other limitations on the pardon power that yeah, we might I mean, not realize right. yet. But the my point, the, the the broader point I was trying to make was, um, if you think there are many aspects of the document, textually and intertextually, all of which point to the notion that self-pardoning is is simply inconsistent with the document, you know, soup to nuts... Um, that might influence what you think the right remedy is. Instead of it being a close question, you might say this is not remotely a close question, and therefore the law should use all the tools at its disposal to make sure this thing never takes any effect.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't actually, I don't personally think it's a c- close question about self-pardoning. I, I think it is like clearly inconsistent with the presidential oath, and I think it is clearly inconsistent with the take care clause. So I, I, don't, I don't view it as a close question. I think, the re, I think the remedial question is a close question. I think the question about what you're supposed to do about it if he attempts to engage in self-pardoning, I mean, you know, the oath, I mean, to just use a simple point, right, the, the, the constitutional oath, it seems pretty clear that you weren't supposed to be able to get you know, a cause of action against the president for his violation of the oath. The oath serves some other exhort exhortative or exhortation function and is a kind of meant to be a moral weight or a conscience weight uh, on the president. Now, what do you do if the president has no uh, compunction or has no <laughs> conscience? You know, it, it seems like the enforcement mechanism there really is impeachment. I mean, if all we mm-hmm. had was the oath, it's hard to say the oath is enough to get you uh, a remedy, a kind of a judicial remedy. The take care clause is different. I mean, it is not, to me, it is meant to be operationalized in a meaningful way. How is, I think, a close question. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of back to that, but I don't think the self-pardoning question as a, as a, as a kind of primary conduct yeah. matter is a close question.
3: But, and one thing to add, I mean, I, I agree with everything that Ethan just said, but I'd also add that the, what, the, what the founders said in, in the convention and in the ratification debate is they expected the end result for a president who was a co-conspirator in a treason is that you know James Wilson said, well, you know, that president would be uh, impeached and prosecuted. And then he later on said in the ratification, and this is what Michael McConnell missed from from Brian Colt's paper originally, and uh, uh, which, which he was you know, critiquing. Uh, James Wilson said in the ratification debates that a president is uh, in his public role uh, uh, held accountable by impeachment and is held accountable as a citizen uh, uh, as well. Um, and, and, that, and, and against immunity and, and that combined expectation was that, a, that, it, that the end result of a president being a co-conspirator would be criminal prosecution. So there had, to, so if a president tried to self pardon, it was something that was inconceivable for them to have legal, legal significance to be treated like mm-hmm. a legally valid document. And so, then, what would be the result? A court should ignore it. If that would be the even if you wanted to take an original expectation or an original me- public meaning approach here, um, James Wilson, the most pro pardon power guy in the convention uh, in the records, still didn't think a president could, ha- could rely on on a self pardon. So, so that that has to mean that there had to be some kind of remedy to prevent that up, and that remedy would be a would be a court disregarding itself.
1: Well, it seems like the, it it sets up the sensible procedure that if the president commits a crime, there's a, a, the, there's an impeachment and a removal, and then a prosecution after removal, That's and right. therefore an opportunity for the next president to pardon. That's he, right. Is you know, although if the president is a vice, you know, it's a vice president is implicated in what you know. So there are there are issues, right? Mm-hmm. But that seems like the most sensible procedure that the president can't be criminally prosecuted while president but can be swiftly removed and then prosecuted so you know there's like i have no doubt that if the president murdered somebody right this is this came up on the last episode too although i I was a cabinet secretary in the in that example right that (laughs) that there would be a criminal prosecution right but um that just would happen i think
0: yeah i don't say that anymore oh boy oh yeah that's
1: that's i don't say things like there's no doubt that um so this is the part this is the part of the conversation which is the end of part one and, and, and so you guys have to tell us, should there be anything more that we talk about here in part one of the episode? Uh, or what should we say for parts two through ten <laughs> of our conversation?
2: Uh, just that we should definitely pick it up, you know, in uh, a few months, you know, when we really see how the stuff's playing it out. Playing out you know? So, you know, we, we, right. what happens is we wrap up part one now. And then we kind of, we, you, know, like, you know, soon, pretty soon. Right. And, and right. then, you know, in a couple months, we kind of check back in. You know, it's
1: almost like a follow-up. Yeah. yeah, I think a follow-up episode would be great. It could also be a continuing saga. We, we have never thought about a spinoff of Oral Argument, like miniseries. You remember how they used to do miniseries in the 80s? <laughs> yeah. Like, whatever happened to those? I think yeah. they just became TV series, like on Netflix. But like it used to be, they, those were events, like with the Martian Chronicles. So we're going to uh, have, co- have Oral Argument, colon, The thornbirds. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. And it'll be like appointment listening. I like right, it. You know, instead of just the regular
3: old episodes. Yeah.
1: I don't know. It was something to think about. That's all I'm saying.
3: Cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You got, Much th- more to th- come th- standing th- and emoluments. And I mean, there are lots of payouts, oh. but we, 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 this is great. We really appreciated the chance to, to, to talk this through.
1: No, I mean, we, I always want to have you guys on. I've been trying to get uh, Jed on forever. We've had Ethan on. Is it just once or if we had you on twice, Ethan? Uh, I think it was just once. I don't, it was
2: for that. It was for the uh, regular prudence thing. Yeah, you pronounced it just really well. I mean, obviously it's ta- Obviously, that's taken off. So that's um, <laughs> thanks to oral arguments. You know, it's really seeing the light of day. Is it not the title anymore? No, it's still the title. It's
1: because I think my one suggestion is you should change the title. <laughs>
0: yeah, wasn't no, that no, song? No. Is it Love Elvira or Elmira? The song El- Elvira, right? But you would do Owaira. Oh no, like it could be a soundtrack. <laughs> this, is, this is
1: this is you guys. We in. End- <laughs> We, we, we have ended the episode about 30 seconds too late.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll think, of, we'll oh think of what, for the next week, what the theme song for this should be, you know, as you introduce us, what, what, what kind of soundtrack you should have in the background. Uh, as does. long as we're talking
3: about music, I just wanted to say with the Eric Muller versus Derek, Derek Muller, uh, I think that we now have, if he had a band, it would be Derek Muller and the Dominoes right oh boy i think that was i think that was what you were riffing on when you you thought when you got the eric derrick thing
1: (laughs) and and then of course we have a bob Mueller. so when all this is over and we can laugh about it we can have you know the muller boys yeah Yeah. i'm I'm not going to wait till it's over to laugh yeah well okay so i'm trying to be positive I'm trying to be positive. You're succeeding. Okay, uh, we have to we have to wind it up somewhere, so we're going to have to just say goodbye. But thanks, yeah, y'all. You, you guys are awesome. Always fun to talk to you. Uh, this is great.
3: Thanks for thanks for all all of the time you, I, you gave to us to be able to talk. So I really appreciate that. All right.